Yes, hello everyone and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is a show for you if you're bored with watching people argue on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant guest this week is an arch-remainer who we're very grateful to have here, Lord Adonis. Welcome to Trigonometry. Great to be with you. Oh, thank <laughs> you very much for coming on the show. Um, let's get cracking. Uh, we usually ask our guests to tell uh, us a little bit about them, but I think everybody knows who you are <laughs> and what you stand for. Uh, so uh, we are where we are now in this, in, in this position. Uh, we're having an election uh, or, or pretty much over the issue of Brexit. Uh, what, just for anyone who doesn't know exactly what your position is, what is your view of Brexit? Do you think it should be reversed? Do you think we should have a second referendum to do that? Uh, what is your view? I think it should... Well, I say reverse, it hasn't happened. Mm. I don't think it should happen. Mm. And I don't think it, but I don't think it should happen democratically. And we're having an election now. And all the, the parties of the centre and the left, and about a third of the Conservative Party, if people were actually able to express their views inside that party, uh, don't want it to happen. And so what uh, they want to see happen is a referendum held with a straight choice between Boris Johnson's latest deal, which is the... Uh, the second version of, uh, of a treaty for leaving the European Union against remaining. And uh, what I'd like to see happen, I think is perfectly credible, indeed is what I think will happen, is that there will be a majority in the next parliament against uh, leaving on these terrible terms, as there was in the last parliament, that since we can't constantly just do nothing, I mean, there's a limit to how long you can literally tread water and not deal with health, mm. education, infrastructure, or there's other things which are uh, of huge concern to the country. At this point, we'll have to bite the bullet. Biting the bullet means calling a referendum, and that will probably be held next spring on the straight choice between uh, uh, the Boris Johnson deal and staying in the uh, European Union. And I think actually, even if Boris Johnson is Prime Minister on the 13th of December, since uh, if you're looking at the most likely and credible outcomes of the election, it's it's very, very hard to see how the Conservatives can win an overall majority. But it is possible they could be the largest party in the next parliament. It's possible Labour will be the largest party in the next parliament. But if the Conservatives are the largest party in the next parliament, but don't have a majority, I still think that Boris will end up with a referendum. And I know Boris Johnson quite well, because when I was Transport Secretary, I worked with him closely as, uh, as Mayor of London. I know him well enough to know that he couldn't give a fig about the European Union. I mean, his, his, he, he was in favour of staying before he was in favour of leaving. He was in favour of being in the customs union and the single market before he was in favour of leaving them. He's perfectly capable of holding two completely contradictory views at the same time. If the deal, the only thing he's really concerned about and has been all the way through is becoming and remaining prime minister. And if the deal for becoming and remaining prime minister in uh, in December and January is uh, is moving towards a referendum on the EU, then I think that's what he'll do. So I, it's at the moment, um, it's all very fought because we're in a, a, a closely fought election campaign. And um, uh, people think that, as they always do, people tend to catastrophize to think that the worst is going to happen and that therefore uh, the game is over it's not remotely over at the moment i would say we're roughly at half time in this i mean this is going to be very reassuring members of the audience who want to see us move on and all that mm. but i would say we're at roughly half time in this great uh, battle over membership of the european union and my best judgment at the moment is that we'll still end up staying one final point about it is one of the constant problems with leaving the european union is that whether you're in favor or against leaving and i, I respect that people hold different views it's very very hard to do 
it's a hugely complex thing to do. It's taking the egg out of an omelette. It's nearly half a century worth of diplomatic, trade, commercial, legal uh, 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 processes which have gone into uh, our relationship with the European Union. But not only is it very hard to do, which is what the government has found, but it is impossible to do without self-harm because it goes to the heart of our whole trading, commercial and security relationship with Europe. Any move away, particularly from free trade, which is an inevitable if we leave the European Union, is inevitably going to involve harm. And the reason why at every stage there's been a vote in the House of Commons on it is that when MPs, true to their Burkean principle of being representatives and not just delegates, when they're actually faced with the job of having to vote this thing through, which they know, because they are reasonably well informed and they can read the words on the page and see what it means, is going to harm their constituents, there's always so far been a decisive majority against it. And my view is that that will be the same in the next parliament as the last one. Before we go any further, can I just credit you with an excellent use of the word fig? (laughs) It was absolutely superb. You you realised it was early in the morning, you didn't drop the F-bomb, so congratulations (laughs) on that. Uh, secondly, um, before we go I- any further, why are you so opposed to leaving the EU? Because the thing, w- it, it rapidly gets very contentious. You know, Ramona, you know, you're racist, all these terms are bandied about. And I think it's really important for people to understand why is it such a bad thing, in your opinion, well, to leave? I, I've uh, been in politics for 30 years now, and um, most issues in politics are matters of degree. They're, they're not matters of, of fundamental... Uh, uh, right or wrong, or or, or huge, um, uh, a huge mistake that you would make on behalf of the country. But about once a generation, you get an issue that's fundamental. Uh, now, most fundamental issues in human affairs you can recover from. Uh, you know, you can fight a war and you can still recover from the war. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily the right thing to do. And when you face one of these fundamental issues, the the thing in my experience to do is fundamentally to oppose it. Uh, and as I look back over the last uh, 150 years, I would say this is up there with the three or four biggest mistakes that we could have made as a country. The, the two others, just to, to set them in the right kind of context, the, the two biggest mistakes we made as a country in the in the in the century and a half before this were not granting self-government to Ireland in the late 19th century which was a catastrophic mistake, which we're still recovering from today, and which in our generation, and indeed in the lives of many of those who are here today, was still was terrorism on the streets of London. I live by Regent's Park. Every day I pass the bandstand when I go my walk first thing in the morning in Regent's Park, which has a plaque to the 12 Royal Green Jackets who were, who were killed when a bomb exploded in the middle of the afternoon concert on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, by the IRA, that is a direct consequence of us not getting policy on Ireland right in the 19th century. And we had an opportunity under Gladstone to create a self-governing Ireland within the United Kingdom. And if we'd done it then, we wouldn't have had all these terrible consequences which blighted so much of the 20th century. We got that wrong. The other big mistake we got wrong, catastrophic mistake, was going into the First World War, which everybody thought would be one of those short wars that would be over by Christmas and ended up as a massive conflagration, which then caused the Second World War and what was essentially a civil war in Europe for 30 years. Is. Now, so let case- me just let me just pause you there because you talk about the fundamental issues. Mm. But uh, Francis and I both voted Remain on the referendum. Mm. But isn't the fundamental issue here democracy? You know, I grew mm. up in Russia in the Soviet Union where we didn't have it. And when I see uh, a vote that went through, I didn't vote to leave, but most people did. Isn't the fundamental issue here respecting the wishes of the people, even if, as you say, and I may take, I may not, it. 
some people think that it will be damaging to their constituents. But have we not had a parliament that actually doesn't represent the wishes of the people? Well, well the, the, the people can't betray the people. That is a fundamental principle of democracy. And democracy is not about one vote at one moment and then no votes ever again. That, that is, uh, uh, generally speaking, how... Uh, but I'm not, a, I'm not saying I'm opposed to the second vote. What I'm saying well, is well, we that, need to that, implement that, the results of the first no, one. No, but that, that is the answer to your point. The answer to your point is this whole p- business of Brexit is, is itself a process. When we had the referendum three and a half years ago, people couldn't know what Brexit would mean, not because they were stupid or because they were ill-informed, but because there was no proposal on the table. The only proposal for Brexit on the table three and a half years ago was four words on the ballot paper, leave the European Union. There was no plan behind it. There was no agreement even amongst the people in favour of Brexit as to what it should mean. Some thought it would mean it was compatible with staying in the single market and the customs union, including the Prime Minister at the moment, who said so in the referendum campaign. Other people said that we should leave. Some people said that we would maintain freedom of movement, which is fundamental to uh, the whole concept of the European Union, whether people can travel freely across borders or not. Other people said that we couldn't. As that has come to be worked through, and as it has remained deeply controversial within our democracy, the right thing to do was, as I still believe we will, will, to hold a further referendum. Shouldn't the questions on that then be given that we voted to leave? Either we leave on the withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson has negotiated, Mm. or we leave with no deal, and those should be the Mm. two options. Well, obviously not, because the the, the, the majority of people, according to opinion surveys, and the majority of MPs are actually in favour of staying in the European Union. But we had the first referendum already. But but again, we couldn't judge staying in the European Union against a specific Mm. deal, whereas this time we can, and the right thing to do. I mean, why would you want to constrain the options you're putting to people when there's by far the most popular option out there is one that's absolutely credible, which is staying in the European Union. So I completely agree with you that this is a fundamental democratic principle. The fundamental difference between the European Union and the Soviet Union, which you referred to, is one is a a democracy and one is not. You know, when um, uh, I always forget all these foreign secretaries, they come and go so fast. There was one called Hunt, wasn't there, recently, who's now sort of receded (laughs) into the distance. When he, in trying to curry favour at a Conservative Party conference, likened the European Union to the Soviet Union, Donald Tusk, the president of the European Union, who was a solidarity activist in the 1980s against the Soviet Union, made the fundamental point that there is a difference between an empire and a democracy. And it's because the European Union is a democracy that it's proved to be its a club of democracies. It's 28 democracies, it's a club of them. It's because it's proved to be so viable and so successful that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, we should be staying in it and not leaving it. And... So we talk about Brexit and we you know, talk about leaving, but what are the implications for the ordinary working person on the street? How will it impact them? How, and most importantly, how will it impact the economy? Well, somebody, in, when we were having our warm-up before, while we were waiting for Constantine to yeah. ne- negotiate Thank you for the bringing M- that up again. The, the, the M25. <laughs> I, I'm a former transport secretary, because when I was doing transport, there were no... <laughs> problems on the roads and the trains all ran on time this is before this was, you can transport is before and after Chris Grayling before Chris Grayling um, but uh, uh, when we were doing our, our warm-up somebody said it's going to take 10 or 15 years to recover from this either way well it will take more than 10 or 15 years to negotiate and to try and make stable leaving the European Union and that's accepted by everybody because uh, the, 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 the formal act of leaving which is what we could do in the next few months simply begins 
a huge process of negotiations over trade deals, security pacts, political relationships with the European Union and so on, which will be at, at least 10 years just in pure negotiations and probably more. And since my judgment is, and all I can give people is my judgment, is it won't be stable and it will lead to loss of jobs, uh, to weakness, uh, international weakness and possibly very serious weakness, visa, not least vis-a-vis uh, uh, Putin's uh, and post-Putin's Russia. I, I think what will happen in 10 to 15 years is, as we go through this process, the next generation of politicians will put membership of the European Union back on the table in a serious way. So I think that is deeply unstable and is a recipe for the next generation having to be overwhelmed by this issue of Europe. However, if we stay in the European Union, nothing changes. Nothing changes at all. It's not to say that there won't be some resentment. There'll probably be 10, 15 percent who will, who will think that uh, we should continue to campaign for leaving. But can I give you a prediction? If we stay, because, of course, it doesn't require any further negotiations at all if we stay. We're still members. We continue on exactly the same terms. The whole thing goes away. If we stay, my prediction is that no prime minister in the, ne- in the lifetime of anyone here, whether they're Labour, Conservative, Lib Dem, some new party that's created, is ever going to call another referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union. People will look back on the Cameron, May Johnson experience and they will say this is the third rail of British politics you touch it and you're dead so we will not go there again. We've, we've had a lot of uh, Remainers on the show, we've had a lot of uh, experts who are Brexiteers on the show and w- one thing they would say is that you're misjudging very badly the mood of the public in the country in terms of how strongly people feel about leaving and equally how little they care about the economic impact. Uh, a lot of people are quite comfortable losing out uh, some of the Polls uh, in the last couple of years show that over three quarters of leavers would be happy to lose out financially if it meant, for example, controlling immigration. So if everything stays the same, the mood in the public will continue to sour, I would put it to you. Well, unusually, I'm, I, I, I've been, uh, for people expressing views on this, I've actually been speaking to the public a lot directly about it. I've done, I've done nearly 200 meetings up and down the country campaigning on Brexit, most of them in leave areas over the course of the last year and a half. So I've met a very large number of people who've been affected by and I've been to all of the communities. I know all these communities well too because I'm a former schools minister and transport minister and in both of those jobs I travelled the length and breadth of the country and I know these communities in fine, in fine, in, 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 in fairly fine detail. And what's clear to me uh, from all of that experience is that in leave areas there, there is a group of, um, of people who are politically active who are passionate about leave. I mean, that's clearly the case. I would put that at 10 to 15% of the electorate in all these cases. In Remain areas, it's much lower than that. However, the reason why there was a vote of 52%, which in those communities was in some cases 55, 60, 65%, wasn't to do with leaving the European Union. It was to do with misgovernment at home, the combination of austerity, no proper plan for jobs and community renewal in these areas, deep poverty and a a deep sense of alienation from their own government, which is predominantly an issue to do with London, Westminster and the quality of representation within the UK, not to do with the European Union. So where I agree with you is if the deal is stay and do nothing, we will go round and round in circles on this issue and it could well come up again in the form of Brexit. We can't do that 
it's uh, you know one of my friends here in the audience when we were warming up before described himself as a socialist and said I wasn't actually I am a socialist I, I do believe in radical social change and I believe in creating much much stronger a much stronger state and social institutions partly to deal with this big issue of alienation inequality and poverty which bedevils our society so what we actually need is to remain and reform and the reform should be fundamental and it's the reason why I'm on the left and not the right in politics is what we should be doing is remain and a, a reforming government like the Attlee government of 1945, which set up the welfare state, set up the NHS, invested in our public services in a big way. That's what we need. And what led to Brexit was this really toxic combination of Brexit plus austerity with the government calling the referendum three and a half years ago, being a conservative government with Cameron Osborne that was actually itself the agents of austerity, which particularly in areas that voted leave, which tended to be the poorer parts of the country, these became the same thing in people's mind, the European Union and austerity. What we've got to do is to break that connection. And that's partly a campaigning issue, making it clear that you don't have to have EU and austerity. But it's also a question of policy. What we need to do is to remain and at the same time, dramatic reform to invest in our public services, end austerity, to take power much closer to people because England is one of the most centrally governed large nations in the world, which particularly in areas more distant from London is deeply resented. It's different in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland where they have devolved assemblies very tellingly. In the case of Scotland and Northern Ireland, they voted heavily against Brexit. So it needs a big new policy offer and that's what's also at stake in this general election. And we're going to touch on no deal for a second because I think, and I consider myself politically aware, but there's a lot of people, you know, they're going about their day and, you know, they're trying to make it through the week. They've got families and they hear terms like no deal or, you know, you know, a Norway agreement, all the rest of it. What is a no deal Brexit and how will that impact on the lives of ordinary people? Well, it's a fraud, the use of the word no deal. Because what, what, what does no deal mean? It means no treaty of any kind. I mean, it must be no. The word no means none. No agreement with the European Union at all. Now, there's virtually no one who says they support no deal that actually supports that. You know, when we debate, as I have done for hundreds of hours now in Parliament, the different options on Brexit, most of those on the right of the Conservative Party, the Ian Duncan Smiths and all that lot, plus the Brexit people, don't actually support no deal at all. Because if there's no deal at all, planes don't fly, you, the, the ports don't operate, no one to leave and come into the country, because all of those arrangements are governed by deals. They're governed by treaty. What they're talking about actually isn't no deal. It's a different deal. It's a deal that's much more limited, that doesn't involve a customs uh, arrangement, arrangements over um, uh, the transition of, uh, of, um, uh, of goods which are tariff-free and things, or arrangements for international driving licences, a whole lot of things it might not cover. But it must cover a whole set of quite important and complex issues like the operation of the ports, the international aviation system, which is governed by treaties, which, are, which we're part of because we're part of the European Union. All of those things will be necessary. And those uh, uh, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, all these people who are actually negotiating uh, Brexit. When they talk about no deal, they still accept that we're going to need a deal covering all those things. So it's, there is no such thing as clean Brexit, no deal Brexit. It's a different Brexit and a different deal that would be needed. And what that is, is what we will get into debating if there happens to be a, an overall Conservative majority. In but the, I guess France's question is, if we were to have that kind of deal, 
what would be the impact? Why is it so bad? Why is well, it so scary? What's the problem with that kind of deal? Well, nobody knows what that deal is because no one's let, set it out at the moment. I mean, we're looking, we're peering into, as you know, as the good book says, peering into a glass darkly. We don't know because no one has set it out. The reason they won't set it out is because it is almost all of the elements would be very bad. So, for example, if they don't involve a trade deal, one of my friends in the audience said before that we had enough of this, we should walk away and start negotiating afterwards. If there is no trade deal, you are immediately facing tariffs on British goods going to uh, our largest markets the, in the European Union and vice versa at between 10 and 150% overnight. That happens overnight. You are faced with customs declarations and customs forms costing between 50 and £100 a piece, which people will have to start filling in immediately. I mean, these are, this, is, this is not... You know, it seems as if you can do it and it's cost-free until it happens. The point at which it happens, I can assure you as a parliamentarian, there will be a huge and dramatic change in opinion. And that's before you get to the issue of Ireland, because no deal in Ireland means immediately there have to be uh, border arrangements between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, which breaks the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement is not only an international treaty, but it's the bedrock of, of, of peace in, uh, in Northern Ireland, which only a generation ago we didn't have. So I, I don't... No deal... Uh, has not been defined. If it were defined, most people who, who, who look at this and actually understand what's going to happen would find it horrific. And even people who glibly, and it's very easy to be very glib and populist and say it's all going to be fine, you know, it's Dunkirk and all that. The moment it actually happens, there will be a massive social revolt. It doesn't matter whether it's Boris Johnson, whether it's Nigel Farage, whether it's Jeremy Corbyn in number 10, they will have to sort it out PDQ. And I've been in politics long enough to know that even if people voted for something which turns out to be a catastrophe, they don't somehow think that, oh, that's all right, we voted for it. They expect the people who are there, who are in charge, to sort it out. And in particular, they will start saying that they were lied to because the people who say that no deal is going to be fine, we can weather it, it's Dunkirk and all of that. When it is not fine, when their prices go up in the shops by 10 to 50%, when there's a big shortage of of goods when bombs start going off in Northern Ireland they will not say oh well we voted for this they will say we were lied to it now needs to be sorted out and you began by saying why do I think this is such a big issue this is a colossal issue this goes to almost everything that matters to us as a political community whether we can actually get terms of, of trade relations a system in Northern Ireland that works all of these things have been very elaborately and painstakingly put together over the last uh, well 70 years now since uh, the European Union uh, started in the ashes of the Second World War and we shouldn't throw it all up in a fit of absence of mind. And we've just touched on Northern Ireland and I've got a lot of friends from Northern Ireland and they are absolutely enraged with what is happening and in particular they feel that the arrogance with which the English have treated them. Mm. If Brexit happens, do, do you think we're going to see a return to the bad old times? Well, uh, it depends what Brexit happens. If, the, if Brexit were to happen according to, to Boris Johnson's uh, latest deal, nothing changes in Northern Ireland. Because the, the deal, which is part of the reason why it's so controversial with the Brexit party and the right wing of the Conservative party, is if Brexit happens according to Boris Johnson's latest deal, then Northern Ireland, rather like Hong Kong, becomes one country, two systems. Because what happens in Northern Ireland under Boris Johnson's own deal is that European law continues to apply, the Northern Ireland continues to be part of the customs union and the single market to all intents and purposes. It's slightly 
it's slightly gilded in the deal by saying it would still be part of the United Kingdom customs union. But in fact, actually, there will need to be customs declarations down the Irish Sea and all of that because Northern Ireland will continue to operate according to the treaty. All of the trade and economic terms and conditions of membership of the European Union so that you don't have to have a border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. But that won't apply between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. So for Northern Ireland itself, it's, do, do I think it, the, the Boris Johnson deal would lead to a return of the troubles? No, I don't. Because to all intents and purposes, Northern Ireland remains part of the European Union. I do think, though, and this is, could be a cause of problems down the line, is it will put on the table in a big way the issue of the creation of a single Irish state because if you've got one country two systems and most of the economic and commercial and immigration rules which is a large part of public policy which govern Northern Ireland are set by the European Union by the consent of Northern Ireland because they would prefer to have happen rather than have a hard border in Ireland if that happens you do then quite quickly get to the question well why why remain part of the United Kingdom I mean, it's a very, it becomes an existential question quite quickly. So my view is that if the Boris Johnson deal goes through, it's only a matter of time and probably quite a short period of time before there'll be a referendum in Northern Ireland about creating a single Irish state. Now, I don't welcome that. It's not because I, I, I my view on Northern Ireland is that the people of Northern Ireland should decide what happens to it. I don't take the same view over Scotland. I think it'll be a catastrophic mistake for Scotland to become independent because we all share one island together. The arg- arguments are different in Ireland. What I do worry about from Ireland, because I'm a historian and can see the long uh, view on this, and I've also I, I, I go to Northern Ireland a lot, is that in Northern Ireland, majorities aren't enough. That's what the genius of the Good Friday Agreement is that whereas most of politics is governed by simple majorities, where you have a fundamental nationalist, unionist cleavage without a basis of shared consent between the two, if you try to make these big existential questions to decide them by simple majorities, that is what leads to violence, conflict and terrorism. That is what did lead to violence, conflict and terrorism two generations ago. So what really worries me is if we make this issue of the creation of an Irish state, if it were to become a majority view in Northern Ireland, it's been a minority view up till now, but if it were to become a majority view, that is not enough because the unionist community in Northern Ireland is not going to say, hey, there's now... 55, 60% that are in favour of creating a United Ireland, so we're going to go along with it. I can tell you, if you meet guys like Sammy Wilson and Nigel Dodds and Arlene Foster, they are not somehow going to say, oh, that's all hunky-dory, we've now got a majority for United Ireland, we're going to go along with it. What you will get is uh, the the uh, the breakout of really extreme unionist politics, which will lead to paramilitary activity and all of that. So the best thing to do, the best thing to do in Northern Ireland, as in my mind, in the whole of the United Kingdom in relation to Brexit, is simply not to do it. Simply not to do it at all. We would be better off. We would avoid a massive national car crash by doing it. And that is also true of Northern Ireland, though there won't be an immediate crisis because Boris Johnson's deal essentially keeps Northern Ireland both in the United Kingdom and in the European Union. Well, other than the Northern Ireland issue, uh, what, is, what are your concerns with Boris Johnson's deal? Well, why, why won't you accept that as the democratic will of the people implemented through a compromise in that way? Well, if it was the democratic will of the people and we had a referendum, of course I would uh, accept it. But why is it that my, my strong advice to people in this election and in a referendum would be not to do it, is that uh, not only only uh, is it worse than the status quo because it removes us from our main trading block. Our security is all based on uh, very close and intimate relations with. But that uh, is what European people unions. voted for to be removed from that yeah, trading but, but, block. Hold on, we're going round in circles. 
I'm saying it should be after an election and another referendum. So if they vote for it, then I would accept it. But what, why is it my advice is that they shouldn't do it, is that it would both be worse. And it's also a leap into the unknown. And that a crucial thing to understand about the Boris Johnson deal is that it doesn't actually have any deal beyond the end of what's called an implementation period, which is at the end of next year at the end of 2020. The only deal in relation to our whole commercial, trade, economic and security policy vis-a-vis the European Union, the only deal in this 500-page document, the only deal is to agree a transition, which is till the end of next year, it can be extended by two further years, during which we will negotiate the actual deal. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Is it sensible, just as a matter of general precaution, not leaping into the unknown till you know where you're going, is it sensible to give up all of the, whether you'll leave or remain, to give up all of the known benefits of remain, the known benefits of being in the European Union, for an intermediate status where you have no idea what's going to happen afterwards? Surely the right thing to do, which is, by the way, what we also promised in the referendum three and a half years ago, is not to take this huge decisive step of leaving the European Union until you know what your long-term relationship with the European Union is going to be. Now, we talked a lot a moment ago about Northern Ireland. The reason why this document is 500 pages, which is a legal treaty, about 400 pages of that are to do with Ireland. Because in the case of Ireland, because of the Good Friday Agreement, it wasn't the European Union, and indeed, to be fair, the British government didn't think it was sensible or indeed even safe to agree to an arrangement in respect of Ireland that expired at the end of next year. Because they thought that was too dangerous. That is the reason why we had the backstop and now we've got the permanent set of relations. What's essentially happened is that there have been two negotiations. One is a long-term agreement about the status of Northern Ireland, which is that to all intents and purposes Northern Ireland will remain in the European Union, but only a very short-term deal in respect of Great Britain, which expires at the end of next year or maybe is renewable for another two years after that, during which period all of the long-term relationship will be negotiated. Now, the right thing to do, if this you were buying a house on this basis and, and or, or doing any other personal deal, you absolutely would not agree to giving up, you know, moving house and going into temporary accommodation until you could see where you were going to be moving thereafter. And that is at the, bed, at the root of the arguments against Boris Johnson's deal. And Lord Adonis, you describe yourself as a socialist and we've got socialists in. All credit to you. You've done a wonderful job in Venezuela. Well done. Um, uh, great stuff. Uh, my, uh, well, he supports them. So, yeah, he does. OK, so... Uh, I, th- I think that's called guilt by association, isn't it? I mean, on, 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 on that basis, on that uh, basis, General Pinochet and Boris Johnson are all part of the same political family as well. It doesn't quite work like that, does it? Uh, no, he's, nice he's, to see Francis pissing everyone off for a change. Uh, no, uh, well, I was a joke but no he's never denounced the venezuelan government but anyway we're moving on that's not the point um the point is is uh, so uh, a lot of uh, you described yourself socialist we've got socialists in the room um is, there are lots of people on the left of the labor party who said that you can't be truly socialist unless you support brexit because so true socialism will never happen under the european union do you ascribe to that notion there aren't lots there are very few most of the left of the labor party are in favour of staying in the European Union. This organisation called Momentum, which is the one that was set up in the wake of Jeremy Corbyn's victory and all of that, the great majority of Momentum activists, indeed a lot of them come to my meetings, when I, these meetings I was talking about earlier, are in favour of staying in the European Union and a lot of them passionately in favour of saying the former 
uh, chief executive of Momentum, is an ardent pro-European campaigner. Indeed, indeed, I know her very well. She has a, an Italian husband. She's got relations across the European Union. She's a sort of classic uh, product, as, I'm, as am I. You know, my dad is Cypriot. I came a generation ago. That I can assure you, all of these communities, in which are very strong in London, but of course are, are, are present across the United Kingdom, are passionately against I mean, in my community. The Cypriot community will literally be divided by Brexit. I'll have a whole load of relations who won't be able to come in and out of the country until we know what the long-term deal is and whether it involves visas and all of that. So the situation is, is, is uh, uh, as it is on the left, is of, of overwhelming opposition to Brexit. There is a small group who have this view that you can't do uh, some forms of nationalisation inside the European Union. Actually, because I'm pragmatic, there's no evidence that that's true. Most of our European partners have larger nationalised sectors than we have because they didn't go through a Thatcherite period. France, you know, transport's my particular area. France, Germany, Italy, Spain, the Netherlands, Belgium, all these countries still have state railway companies. Most of their railways are still run by state companies. Indeed, the irony is a lot of those state companies have been bidding for contracts to run railways here in order to extract some of the profit from the way that we privatised our railways under the Tories uh, 20 years ago so being pragmatic and most of them by the way have have state-owned water and electricity companies as well which which we don't have at the moment and they do all of that within the european union so um uh, whilst it is true that there is a requirement to uh, put contracts out to tender and things of that kind which actually i i support because i think you should always see what choices are available across most of europe they have much larger nationalized sectors than we have in the utilities which is the main area of debate inside this general election in the utilities they mostly on the continent have state-run not privately run enterprises that's absolutely compatible with membership of the european union and that's the reason why most people on the left don't have a problem with EU membership. So on the subject of the left and the Labour Party, it seems to me, <clears throat> we mentioned uh, Jeremy Corbyn briefly, um, that always ends up well. Um, I, I voted for the Labour Party at the last election. Um, and it was the first election, I believe, in recent times when more working class people voted for the Conservative Party than did for the Labour Party. Uh, there, there, there is a lot of resentment uh, uh, among working class people about the Labour Party becoming the party of the kind of metropolitan university educated elite. Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, shall we be charitable and say he's been unclear about his position on Brexit? Um, what do you make of the the Labour Party in, in, and Brexit in, in the current time? Well, all political parties are social coalitions. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's right, because the, the aim of politics in a democracy is to bring people together and to try and create consensus, not to divide them. So I'm proud of the fact that there's a strong middle class component in the Labour Party and, of course, a, a strong trade union and, and working class component. What The job of the party is, you know, the Labour Party's to be the People's Party is to bring people together. Do I think we have strong enough social support? Clearly not. I mean, somebody said before that, that we defied the polls in the last election. Well, we did do a lot better by the end of the election than at the beginning, but it's very important that my Labour friends understand that we lost the last election. Mm. We didn't win it. We had 55 fewer seats than the Conservatives at the end of the last election campaign, and we polled two and a half percentage points less than the Conservatives, which by historic standards is about the division between winning and losing parties. Historic what we did in the last election was to achieve was to was to turn catastrophe into a narrow defeat. What we've got to do this time is to turn narrow defeat into victory. And what does that require? It requires, as it always does in politics, having a broad social and political appeal. 
And that means we've got to have a very strong appeal in working class communities where all the issues we've been talking about earlier, uh, disaffection, extreme poverty, extreme inequality, the absence in many of these communities of a real plan for jobs and community renewal. We need to get all of that right too. But if you're sitting in a more affluent part of London, for example, at the moment where it, uh, leaving the European Union is also existential. You know, what's going to happen to the, you know, London is a, is a city which has... 15 universities. It has one of the most international higher education sectors in the world, possibly in the world. All of that is in jeopardy. All of it is in jeopardy with Brexit. So we need to be able to, to uh, bring together all of these different parts of the community and to speak to them all. And it's perfectly compatible. It is absolutely compatible to be able to say in Middlesbrough, we need a really big plan for jobs, investment and dealing with poverty in Middlesbrough, whilst at the same time saying in parts of London, we don't want Brexit because we don't want to be uh, having visas required for people to travel between Britain and the continent. These aren't incompatible policies. We need to be very strong in saying all of them and building a broad social coalition. And I, I believe it's possible for us to do that. But, but, you, but my point is Jeremy Corbyn hasn't done that. He hasn't done that. I know a lot of working class people who feel utterly alienated by his position on many issues and his lack of clarity on the issue of Brexit. I know many uh, metropolitan liberal types who are deeply alienated, who voted Labour entire life because the position on Brexit has been so muddled, so unclear. And a lot of people feel that it's actually dishonest. He's tried to play both sides and he's got none. Well, to, to, to be fair, I've been probably, as you kindly said at the beginning, one of the, the more active Remain campaigners, both nationally and inside the Labour Party. I made myself very awkward with the current Labour leadership, including Jeremy personally, by campaigning really hard last year in the party for us having a second referendum at a stage when the party didn't want, when he didn't want, didn't want to commit one. And at the party conference last year, that was the big issue, was whether we would commit to holding a, a second referendum with the Remain option. That is now party policy. That is at the heart of our manifesto for this, uh, for this election. Now, I, I don't myself believe in thought police politics. I don't believe that you, it is in, in, incompatible to be a member of the Labour Party and to be a Brexit. I think it's perfectly possible, we discussed it earlier, to be Labour and to be in favour of Brexit. I certainly don't think we should have some kind of doctrinaire test that to be a member of the Labour Party, you have to be a Remainer. What I do think is right, what I've been campaigning for, is that we should give the country the choice, which also means giving Labour Party activists the ability to campaign for people to have the choice. And Jeremy has committed to that. So what I was seeking to do all of last year, which is that we should be committed to a second referendum with a Remain option, and on the back of that, we should have a big reform plan for the country. That is the party's manifesto in this election. I am certainly not going to be out there saying, and therefore every Labour Party member must sign in blood that they are a Remainer. That's not my kind of politics at all. And so you're saying that it's about essentially Labour winning hearts and minds. My question to you would be, how is Labour, in particular Jeremy Corbyn, going to be able to do that when he can't even unite his own party? Well, we see people defecting. Well, actually, that's simply not true. Look, the fact is, because sometimes because of the way our, our, our rather Tory media reports things and the BBC, which has been doing a great job, you would think that there was riot and rebellion inside the Labour Party. Large numbers of Labour MPs have been deselected. And Do you know how many Labour members of Parliament have actually been de deselected for this election? Well, I think Francis was referring to the people leaving. Hold, I'll come to them in a moment. Yeah. Hold on. The answer is none. None. Not a single Labour member of Parliament has been deselected. Do you know how many Conservatives have been deselected as they've imposed their extreme Brexit option on? Well, it was 21 of whom 
uh, uh, 10 have now been readmitted, but it's significantly more. What All of the things which the right claimed that the left have been doing, which is intolerance, not allowing broad spectrum of opinion, all that they've been doing to themselves. Now, it's true a few Labour MPs have left. It's a handful who left. It's Chucker, it's Chris Leslie. I mean, it's literally, it's a handful. Luciana Berger. Lucia, yeah, it, but far more Conservatives have left. You know, I was um, doing a thing two days ago with Dominic Grieve. Dominic Grieve, who is, by the way, I think has played an absolute blinder in last year. In terms of, of parliamentarians, I have a real respect for who are doing the Burke's job of being representatives, not delegates, saying the right thing for the country and doing all of that. He's up there. He is having to fight in Beaconsfield at the moment as an independent because he's been expelled from the Conservative Party. So I don't, I don't think as a Labour Party person I need any lessons in intolerance from uh, people in, in other political parties or, 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 or commentators when the real intolerance we're facing in British politics at the moment, which is deep and bitter intolerance, is on the right, with Farage and the Brexit party and a, a Conservative party more intolerant of divergent views than at any time in my lifetime. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn actually has maintained the Labour Party as a broad church. He himself, of course, has a very clear view of where he is personally, but he has not been, you know, uh, I mean, I, I don't mind describing myself as historically a Blairite. I think that the Blair government is one of the best things that's happened to this country, particularly look at what's happened since. I mean, it, let's bring back Tony Blair. I mean, let's have a lot more of that rather <laughs> than what we've had since. You're really but, misjudging but I, the middle of the country <laughs> there, the, believe you but me. But, <laughs> and I, I'm happy to have that argument. But look, the Blairites inside the Labour Party are overwhelmingly still inside the Labour Party. Yeah. And I have no hesitation in saying that what we want is a broad church Labour Party. I'm content with Jeremy Corb Corbyn's leadership in this election, provided he operates a broad church policy. And as we've discussed on Europe, which has been the most contentious issue inside the party, he's, in fact, compared to how uh, the, the last three leaders of the Conservative Party have played it, he has been God's gift to broad-mindedness, tolerance and um, pluralism in politics. I'm giving as good as I get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you're, no, you're, no, you're, no, you're doing a good you're, job. You're brilliant. This is, and that was a party political broadcast. Anyway, so... Um, Let's but, do a couple more minutes before yeah, we open up. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah. what would you say to people? Um, uh, so, off the top of my head, people like Philip Collins, who you you know you will know well, used to write speeches, Blair's main speechwriter, uh, comedian Matt Ford, you know, people who were staunch Labour people, and felt that the party was moving in a direction that was unacceptable, and they had to renounce their membership. And in Philip Collins' case, it was of anti-Semitism. Yeah. Well, I, I think that they were mistaken in terms of leaving the party. Do, do I do I think that there's a problem of anti-Semitism inside the Labour Party? I think there is. Let's be Why? Absolutely Why is there a problem with anti-Semitism? Because there are some members of the party who have been tolerant of, of uh, anti-Semitic views and anti-Semites. My own view is very straightforward, is that those people have no part in any mainstream political party, and that includes the Labour Party. Uh, and that has come under the spotlight, and there is a, a, an Equalities and Human Rights investigation into whether... The party has handled that properly, and I think anyone who's been responsible for, for, for tolerating or excusing or allowing anti-Semites to play a role inside the party, I think that is a fundamental issue, and it needs to be, uh, to be sorted out. But do I think that we should all... All those of us who don't hold those views, which is the overwhelming majority of people inside the Labour Party, Labour MPs, Labour members, Labour members of the House of Lords like myself, do we think we should therefore leave our own party? I think that's a category error. I think it's the anti-Semites and those who hold those views who should be leaving the party. But isn't it's that not those problem? of us who hold the mainstream but isn't that and the sensible problem, views that, is that they haven't it's left the party. As you say, they have been tolerated. Well, and it seems to be that the people who are leaving feel like it's either them leaving 
or, or staying in a party where those anti-Semites are allowed to remain. Yeah, well, as I say, I think that's a category error. The, the anti-Semites are the tiny majority. Those of us who, who don't hold those views and find them repugnant are the overwhelming majority. And in any organisation, it shouldn't be the overwhelming majority that have to leave their party because of no, no, misbehaviour by a minority. My point was something else, my point was something else which is those people who are leaving feel like the, the, the party leadership is not addressing that issue robustly mm. enough. Would you agree with that? I, I think it wasn't addressing it robustly enough. I think it is now, is, is, my, is my view in response to that. I think, in, and, and at the time, and, uh, you know, some of the people you've mentioned are, are friends of mine. I completely respect their points of view. But I, uh, it's always been my view of politics that you should stay and fight, and, and you certainly don't leave until you've lost. And on this issue of, uh, of anti-Semitism, we haven't lost. On the contrary, the overwhelming majority of people who hold these views um, – uh, uh, who hold our views, which is that we find it completely repugnant and unacceptable. We're the ones who've come through. And to give a specific example, Margaret Hodge, who is absolutely in the in the lead on these issues, is fighting the next election as the Labour candidate in Barking and Dagenham. And, and she, as you know, has been, was extremely critical of the leadership on these issues. So uh, I, I understand what they're saying, but we're the majority... They're the minority, and it should be the minority, which in the case of anti-Semitism is a tiny minority, it should be them that leave the party. It shouldn't be the rest of us. And do you think Corbyn and his leadership has condoned anti-Semitism? Well, that's a matter for the European... Uh, for the Equalities and Human Rights <laughs> investigation. The answer is I don't, I, I don't know. That's I don't a very know. equivocal answer there. Well, uh, the, the truth is I don't know. Yeah. Well, exactly, that's the reason why that's this investigation yeah, yeah, yeah. has no, been set enough, up. Of but uh, if people have condoned it, that yeah. is totally unacceptable. I've got okay. not a slightest okay. hesitation. In, okay. uh, do, we, do we have a fourth roaming mic or do we need to give one of these up? We've got uh, one. Fantastic. Yeah, we've got, Perfect. Yeah, well, before we crack on with questions, can we just uh, thank Lord Adonis for giving us his time and coming yeah. out? Yes. Whether we agree with everything or not. Uh, so, uh, gentlemen there, please. Thank you. And then we'll go there and we'll go there. We'll take three at a time and then get some answers. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thanks for an interesting discussion. Um, about a second referendum, um, I, I agree with Lord Donis that if a clear majority of the public now wants to remain, it would be kind of crazy to go to fly in the face of that. But does he not accept that... Every election, every referendum involves a large degree of chance. It depends on the weather, it depends on last-minute political events, it depends on the charisma of the people involved. Um, and if a second referendum happens and it's 52-48 the other way, it's not going to feel like the country's changed its mind. It's going to feel like the coin's been flipped until the answer, Remainers want, is, 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 is provided. So would he be prepared to require a two-thirds supermajority for a second referendum if the first one's going to be overturned? And that would close the door to further referendums. No is the answer okay. to that because because we have to we have to make a decision and so though I would hope it I'd much rather it was a bigger majority than that the fact of the matter is we've got to decide and if we start putting artificial things rules in like that what happens if we get into the zombie situation where there's a majority but it doesn't meet the super majority what do you then do do you go and adopt the minority position because you haven't got the majority position so though as it happens I would have supported a, a larger majority for the first referendum before you started this process we have now got to decide and I think it would be very dangerous to put artificial majorities in that could mean we're in a kind of zombie land where we're incapable of acting as a country. And in the situation we're now in, we can't not act. It's very important to understand that. We're in a very different situation from three and a half years ago. Three and a half years ago, we didn't need to start this process. So if you hadn't reached your supermajority, it wouldn't have mattered because you just don't start the process of leaving the EU. Now we are about to leave 31st of January. 
we're leaving. So if you have a zombie situation where you have a majority, but it's not the super majority, what do you do? Do you leave or not leave? So though I would uh, uh, would have agreed with you from for, for the beginning of the process, not to start the process without it, we are in a desperate crisis situation at the moment. We've got to decide as a country, and I would not put any impediments in the way of being able to decide. And unfortunately, a supermajority could be just such an impediment at the moment. I do agree with you. Of course, there are lots of chance factors in elections that... Oh, the third referendum. The third the crucial thing to understand about our system is that what we've got, which is part of the reason we're in this situation at the moment, is we have what is basically a parliamentary democracy, which is now, over the course of the last 50 years, we've grafted certain elements of direct democracy onto it. Now, you can have a debate about whether that was a good idea or not a good idea, whether it's a good idea to have referendums at all. But under our system of government, which is fundamentally different from, for example, Switzerland, referendums are only held because Parliament calls them. The only reason there was a referendum three and a half years ago is because David Cameron and the majority in Parliament called it. We don't have the initiative, which they have in Switzerland, which enables the people themselves to call referendums, which is the reason why they have five to ten referendums a year. Now, one thing I am pretty sure of is that if after the second referendum there is not going to be a third referendum in any hurry because you won't get a parliamentary majority and a prime minister is prepared to call it so we're not in a situation where you end up with neverendums because always a minority in the country can call it under our system only a parliamentary majority by statute can call a referendum and that requires essentially the leadership of the governing party which means the prime minister to agree and as i say after a second referendum i can't see any prime minister in the short term agreeing for or to another referendum and leaving the European Union. If we do leave, actually, I think there is a reasonable chance that a prime minister in 10 or 15 years might call a referendum on going back in. But, but that's another matter. Yeah, we had a question at the back there. Somebody had their hand up. I saw you first. Yeah. Hi, thank you. It was a really interesting discussion. Um, there are a couple of things that you said that I'd like um, to tease out to, to get you to, to elucidate a little further on. Um, the first thing was you, you talked about us being approaching the half-time stage in the Brexit debate. I'd really appreciate some clarity when exactly you think the kick-off whistle was. Was it 2016? <laughs> was it 1975? Was it 1973? Was it one or other of the occasions when de Gaulle rejected our application? I, I think it was actually 1066 as it happens, well, but... You know, but, but we're not necessarily no. half-time on that one. <laughs> sure, sure. but the point is, I mean, you appreciate that, that whatever happens in two or three years, mm. the debate about Britain's relationship with Europe is, is going to be continuing. Mm. Um, and the second point that you said, you said nothing changes if we stay in the EU. Well, unfortunately, as you know, given the way the EU works with, with sort of more and more powers being transferred by successive treaties, we've kind of seen how that has happened over the years that we've been a member of the EU. And even if there's a certain Eurosceptic tension in numerous member states which maybe slow slow the process down that you know again this issue of britain's semi-detached relationship with europe by not being in the euro by not being in the schengen zone and frankly being unlikely to join either even if we do remain somehow in the eu um how do you envisage I mean, how do you relate to this idea of nothing changing? It seems to me that a lot of the underlying tensions are going to remain here and remain unresolved we don't we don't have to join the euro or schengen Simple answer. We don't have to join them. The fact that some of our European partners have, have set up a single currency is, is a matter for them. We have, because of the brilliance of British negotiations in times past, including John Major, who did a fantastic job at the Maastricht Treaty, we're not required to join. We, we can choose as a country. It's very important not to scarify people. There is no treaty obligation on us whatsoever to join the euro. 
but we have a right to join it if we wish to do so in the future. Uh, that but is I think the general's point was even if we, we don't, don't join, join the Schengen, Euro, either. we nonetheless preserve the tensions that we currently of have in our society. Tension. Look, what relationships in human affairs do not involve tension? I mean, I mean, let's me be fair. Of course, it involves tension. The whole—we're we're talking about a union between twenty-eight nations which share our continent. Of course, that's going to be tense. Even if the European Union worked ten times better than it does at the moment, you would still have tension. This isn't whether there's tension, because there's inevitably going to be tension in, in any relations of that kind. The question is whether it's manageable and advantageous for us. This is the crucial point because you're, there is no perfection in human affairs. Is it, given the choice we face, advantageous and manageable for us to stay in the European Union? Definitely. It's definitely advantageous. It's definitely manageable. And do not scarify people with phantoms, which may or may not emerge. It may be that it, at some point in the future we face another big issue in our relation with the European Union about a further act of integration. It may. It may not. We have faced them in the past and we've managed to negotiate our way through perfectly satisfactorily. It's perfectly satisfactory for there to be a block of members of the European Union that have a single currency and for us not to. That is not a reason why we need to give up free trade, which is essentially the big benefit that we have inside the European Union at the moment. I'm not saying there won't be tension, but I do say that it's man that, that tension is manageable and I certainly think it's advantageous for us to stay rather than to leave. There was a gentleman in the front row who was next. Can I just say, uh, every Battle of Ideas session I've been to, someone has complained about a lack of female voices. So if you're a woman, please put your hand up so we don't look sexist. <laughs> All right, so we'll go to you, madam, at some point. Uh, gentleman down here in the front row, please, guys. Hi. Um, yeah, thanks for a great discussion. Uh, Andrew, you and I are not going to persuade each other on Brexit. <laughs> but uh, in the spirit of agreement on this Sunday morning, I'd just like to mention that uh, I'm a big big fan of hs2 yeah you were one of the many many fewer of them than there are supporters of the european union another non-controversial subject um so basically my question is uh when do you think it will actually happen uh i know that you know and um how do you persuade the rest of the country to get behind hs2 oh i'd love to do a whole thinking session on that. Uh, the answer is it's happening at the moment. If you go uh, only a mile away from here to Euston, the whole of the Euston area at the moment is one massive building site because HS2 is being constructed at the moment. It's the same in the centre of Birmingham. So the issue isn't whether HS2 happens. The legislation has passed, the money has been allocated, it is being built between London and Birmingham. The actual issue, though Boris is trying to elide it because he's trying to appeal to people who are for and against in the way that Boris always does. He tries to appeal to both sides by pretending he doesn't have a view on either side. Well, you can't carry on doing that forever. The issue actually on HS2 isn't whether it's built from London to Birmingham, it's whether you're going to stop it in Birmingham. Now, it would be ludicrous to build a high-speed railway line which goes halfway up the country. You know, it obviously needs to go between the three largest metropolitan centres of the country, which is its whole purpose, which is London, Birmingham and Manchester. The fourth largest is Leeds, which is the reason why it should have a branch going across there. My own view is that the dynamic is such that it will be built that way because it will seem to the public to be so ludicrous to have a high-speed line with high capacity, very fast journey times and all that, which stops in the Midlands. So I think it will happen. What's at stake, really, is whether we have an integrated plan, which we're very bad at doing in our infrastructure, an integrated plan in one go to do London, Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, or whether in classic British fashion we half-build it, we get to Birmingham, we have a 20-year pause while we have a massive national railway, and then we build it up <laughs> to Manchester and Leeds. I think that that would be a 
mistake. And that's what I've been saying very firmly, personally, actually, because I have a relationship with him to Boris, is that it's absolutely, you can you could have taken a decision before not to do HS2. I think that would have been a mistake. But to half build it and to leave people stranded in Birmingham on these high-speed trains <laughs> is, the, is the height of folly. I think we can all agree that being stranded in Birmingham would be a dreadful thing. It's a dreadful thing if you want to go to Manchester. <laughs> if you want to go to Birmingham, it's fine. Gentlemen, we'll go to you, madam, uh, then to you, madam, and then to you, sir. So leaving aside whether or not leaving or remaining um, is a good or bad thing, one of the so-called advantages that the Leave campaign had is that they were able to paint a vision of how Britain could be better, whereas the Remain campaign uh, kind of stuck with this status quo narrative and how bad it would be if we left. But the fact is is that the status quo is not going to stay the same. It never has stayed the same. And the European Union's got issues around tax policy, around the stability of the euro, an army, uh, foreign policy, etc. All of these things that it wants to integrate and improve upon. And obviously... Uh, we can all see the trend that where the EU wants to be is as a grand superstate. So why haven't the Remain campaign embraced that and promoted the advantages and how great that would be and how we could be a global player? Uh, because that is a perfectly respectable position to have. But the reason why so many people don't feel enthused is because instead it's adopted this position of, or oh, how terrible it's going to be for the economy if we leave. So why not embrace that vision as a superstate Europe because I don't agree with your premise. That's the reason why it's not correct. I do. I make the argument for the European Union in the way that Churchill made it in 1945 as a kind of, and the words kind of are crucial, a kind of United States of Europe. It's a kind of federation. And I believe in that. I believe in peace, prosperity, very close partnership, including shared institutions between the nations of Europe. And actually, in the economic sphere, those are highly integrated. We have the world's most integrated and effective and largest free trade and single market zone. Indeed, in history, no other group of 28 countries has managed to have not just tariff-free, but essentially regulation-free trade in the way we have. Now, I don't like the term superstate because it's intended to be pejorative. It is a quasi-federation in the same way as, as uh, you know, because there's no one standard form of federation if you're studying political science. There are whole different sets of ways that countries can work together at a supranational level. However, does that mean, because that is a very successful quasi-federation, which has hugely boosted the peace and prosperity of Europe, indeed, in the case of peace, largely established it in the last 70 years, that therefore, teleologically, because you know, we're using these sort of... Uh, conceptual ways of thinking about it that must mean full integration in terms of armed forces uh, and a further big um, uh, uh, leap forward in terms of um, of creating a, a single economic policy for the whole of Europe and all that and the answer is that's total rubbish just take the issue of the European army to just to take that one as one which is a kind of bogey there are only two seriously functioning armies in Europe that's Britain and France we're the only countries that spend enough on defence and have a sufficiently large armed forces to be able to mobilise significant forces. And indeed, the one that people say will be the linchpin of this, 
which is Germany, if there were to be a European army, Germany resolutely refuses to invest more than a, a, about a much smaller proportion than we do of their GDP on defence because they want to spend it on other things. Now, I know Germany quite well. I can assure you that Chancellor Merkel and her likely successors are not going to be leaping to double German defence spending. They actually are quite happy piggybacking on France, Britain and the United States to maintain their defence. So it's it's very important not to sort of believe all this stuff that comes out of Nigel Farage and all of this that because the current European Union has certain elements of a federation about it, we're therefore going to be having all of these bogeymen. It's not true. As it happens on the concept of a European army, on the concept of it, I don't, I don't myself have a problem with it. We have a NATO army essentially at the moment. That's what how all everything we do at the moment in terms of our defence is based on NATO. Now NATO involves a very very high degree of integration between the forces of France, Britain, and the United States, including under Article Five of the NATO Treaty, an absolute requirement to come to the defence of all of the other members. An attack on one is an attack on all. The loss of sovereignty involved in that is much greater than anything involved in the European Union. I don't have a problem with it. It works. It's work. It's a it's a club of democracies. We share the same values and all of that. But in fact, it's not actually the case that we're going to get a European army or it's seriously on the agenda because that isn't where the politics of Europe is. Where is the politics of Europe at the moment? It's seeking to maintain the peace and stability of the existing European Union, which mean, it means two things in particular, where we have a massive and, and huge interest. The first is seeing that, um, that the current European economic zone functions effectively. We have a huge interest in that. And the second, to be blunt, is seeing that an out-of-control semi-fascist Russia, which is on our borders and is a real and present danger to us, it's already invaded one European country, the Ukraine, it could easily invade others, that we keep them at bay. Now, the European Union together with NATO, have been, been doing a good job of that over recent years. We need to sustain that. We shouldn't be scarifying ourselves by a whole lot of phantoms of things which, which, uh, which uh, are simply not going to happen, but which could lead us to making big, big mistakes about withdrawing from existing areas of integration and cooperation which are working very effectively. As someone who works with a Russian, I couldn't agree more. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I, don't, I don't think Constantin, I don't think he's an agent of President Putin. <laughs> a lot Whoa, of people on the internet do, believe me. Uh, uh, you, Madam, please. And then we'll go to you, Madam, and then to you, sir. Um, thank you. I grew up in Hartlepool, which was one of the strongest areas yeah. for voting to leave the European Union. Uh, it was a very strong Labour seat. But um, in recent years, there, I think people have got a bit fed up with the arrogance of politicians. In fact, some years ago, when Hartlepool was forced to have a mayoral election, like the monkey. they elected mm. the football mascot, mm. a monkey. Mm. Indeed. And, um, of course, in the last election, uh, well, people were very upset when Peter Mantelson was parachuted in. I mean, he did have some connections with the area, but, of course, he was a an outsider. And more recently, they voted in the last election, a Brexit candidate was elected. But even more than that, in the last local elections, Labour actually lost control of the local authority. And I just wondered, do you think it's realistic of the Labour Party to think that they can win back these seats with the promise of jam tomorrow, as you were saying, uh, a great programme of reforms and investment in these poor poorer areas. 
Well, I think it's the only way, isn't it? Because what politics is about in a democracy is seeking to deliver things that people want. And what people want in Hartlepool is they want more investment and a, and a serious economic plan. It's the only way. Do I think it's realistic to do it? Yes, I think it is realistic to do it. And indeed, though you're absolutely right about what's happened in Hartlepool, you're completely right that uh, that uh, Labour did lose uh, the, the, the local authority and hasn't been uh, uh, strong enough on the ground. That's not true of a lot of other communities in the in, in the north where Labour has remained very strong. You know, for example, the city of Manchester, the largest single uh, metropolitan area in the north. Uh, there's almost no non-Labour members of Manchester City Council. Andy Burnham is the mayor of Greater Manchester. There is a sense of there being a proper plan for Manchester, including the area I'm most interested in, which is ed- education and transport. You know, Manchester is the biggest and strongest university outside London, has more students than apparently anywhere west of Moscow. So I'm bringing these things in because apparently Constantine likes, likes, likes these parallels. <laughs> and there's a big transport plan and all that. So the, the, what my, my view is, uh, and part of the reason for that is Labour has had a good plan, a reasonably good plan for Greater Manchester, including creating a mayor, a single integrated authority, a big transport plan and all that. We haven't had a good enough plan I'll be quite frank, frank with you, for Hartlepool and some of the coastal uh, communities, and we need to get much better at that. But when you say, do, do I think it's realistic? Yes, I do think it's realistic, but also there's no alternative because there's no other way of rebuilding labour in these communities other than addressing what are the real existing problems that they face with with credible plans. Uh, the woman by the door there, yeah. Uh, yes, um I think the kind of the, the the best thing really about Brexit is that it's kind of opened up a lot of political questions that had been really closed down for for a generation really. So you mentioned already, you know, United Ireland, there's Gibraltar, but also things like the House of Lords, first past the post, regional government, and and you know, I I think that the the mood of the country is not that they want any kind of uh, new. Uh, system uh, handed down to them from government. It feels like there's a real desire and a real appetite for a, a big process of democratic debate and renewal. And I just wonder whether you, whether you think that's right, and if you think there's any ways that we can, uh, you know, foster that. Well, I completely agree with that. Uh, but it doesn't require leaving the European Union. Indeed, Europe, leaving the European Union would make it harder to deal with that. So, for example, the House of Lords, I think the House of Lords is, a, is a, at the moment is a democratic monstrosity. You know, I mean, I was appointed by a prime minister 15 years ago and have no more legitimacy than that. I'm strongly in favour of an elected House of, uh, House of Lords. And I also think it should have a strong regional component and should help to bring the nations and the regions of the country together, a bit like the, um, the second chambers uh, in, um, in, in Germany and the United States. So I certainly do I think it's right to open up those issues. I think we need much stronger devolution. We need to hand a lot, lot more power down to local governments and regional and city governments in England, because England is essentially run almost like a colony from London at the moment. We need a reform second chamber. All of those things, I think, are correct. And uh, you may be right that Brexit has had the effect, the Brexit argument has had the effect of opening them up in a bigger way than before. I would, I would accept that. But I don't think the right thing to do is to leave the European Union. I think the right thing to do is to stay in the European Union, but address those issues and it's a wake-up call to the political class that they do need to be addressed. I mean, the House of Lords reform has been on the agenda for a century and we never actually managed to do any of it. It's about time we actually got real and did it. The gentleman in the middle there. Hi there. Um, I've been a Labour voter all my life. Um, I won't be voting Labour in this coming up election. And the reason is purely down to leadership, uh, or should I say lack of leadership. Um, The whole Brexit issue 
with Corbyn, and the anti-Semitism is unbelievable. If he can't get that right in his own party, I genuinely don't see how he could ever lead a country. My, my question to you is, if we had somebody like, say, Keir Starmer leading Labour now, do you think the polls, the whole dynamics of this situation would be in a completely different place? Well, I, I, Keir is a friend of mine. I think he'd make an excellent leader of the Labour Party, but you can only have one leader at a time. And we are in a general election campaign at the moment, and the choice which faces the country, and it's a real choice, is do you want, as the Prime Minister on the 13th of December, Boris Johnson, with all that comes with him, or Jeremy Corbyn? My judgment well, is the that the polls we... are pretty clear on that, aren't they? In well, terms of... Yeah, but the, the real poll is on the 12th of December. <laughs> and my friend here was asking me, saying, you know, and that, that is the choice that we face. My judgment is that the better thing for the country, the better policy for the country, the better leader out of those two, and that is the choice that we face, is, um, uh, would be Jeremy Corbyn. Do I think in due course Keir Starmer would make a great leader of the Labour Party? I completely agree he would. But this is the biggest open goal that we've ever seen. For well, the, the one thing you can't do when you're in any situation is to say, I wish we weren't here because we'd done five, five things differently in the past. Do you know, I wish we'd done five things differently in the past, but we are where we are. The choice facing the country now in an election which is now underway, that is the choice. And we all have to make judgments uh, on that basis. That is the choice which the country faces. And uh, given the, the, both the, the people involved and the policies which underlie those people too, I think that the right, uh, the, the right uh, government for the country on the 13th of December would be a Labour-led government, not, not a Tory-led government. And this issue of Brexit is absolutely central to that. Uh, do we have anybody else? Yes. Uh, so uh, I know uh, if we could pass it down to the man in the hat. Jared. Hello, thanks very much. Um, I'm really fascinated by one of the points that you made earlier on um, concerning what's actually inside the Brexit debate. I took on organising um, uh, London Intellectual Dark Web Group because I wanted to meet people who were across the aisle from me. I found over this uh, 10 years since I got a smartphone in 2009 that I abandoned my habit of reading lots of different news newspapers. And what I find with talking with people across the aisle is that the idea of Brexit has become superordinate. And the discussion on any other issues to do with housing, um, transport and all the other issues um, really faded into the background. And a few months ago, I started asking people, um, would they rather we left the European uh, Brexiteers, would they rather we leave the European Union or would we rather have the time and effort spent in um, dealing with housing or transport or all, all the other issues? Uh, and I've really been astonished at their, not that there's not that they haven't thought about it, but they, they're they're astonished that there could be an alternative um, to take up our political time outside outside of Brexit. Why is it that you, that you think that the Brexit issue has become so superordinate to taking up everything that all of these other issues that actually inform it, such as austerity, have been sort of largely abandoned in the background? Uh, because in a, real, in a real existing... In the real existing situation, it is. I like I like, like the word which I haven't used before, but we need another word for this Sunday morning thing. Superordinate. <laughs> I've never used that word, but I like it. <laughs> yeah. I take superordinate to mean overwhelming. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, well, it, the reason why people are treating it as an overwhelming issue is because it is an overwhelming issue. You know, the European Union Withdrawal Act, which is one of nine nine pieces of legislation which are needed to prepare the way. For leaving the European Union. And that's before we get to these trade deals and everything else coming down the line. That was debated in uh, the House of Commons and the House of Lords for 300 hours, which is longer than any piece of legislation has been debated in the history of Parliament. 
So when you say that the issue is superordinate and people treat it as if it's superordinate, the reason they treat it as if it's superordinate is because it is superordinate. How much time has Parliament spent debating housing policy in the last three years? Well, I, we had a debate in the House of Lords on housing two weeks ago. The debate lasted two hours. Those are the relative ratios of, of, of the time Parliament is spending. Until Parliament itself, which is our political class and our political institutions, themselves can find a way of moving on, we are going to be overwhelmed. And unfortunately, it also has the effect, which I think has been deeply damaging to our politics, but which you were sort of hinting at in your remarks, which is that every other issue is seen through the prism of Brexit. Now, let me say, I think that is a complete mistake. It's part of the reason why I'm so much against Brexit. Brexit. The, reason, the way of dealing with the housing crisis is, hey presto, to deal with the housing crisis. It's to start building council houses again in a big way. It's to start getting into the business of regulating the private rented sector. It's to give people a fairer deal. It's to end the two-child policy, which is monstrous inside universal credit. That means a lot of people can't even afford decent quality housing at all. That's the way you deal with it. It's not by somehow doing Brexit, because then it's going to, I don't know what, you know, the chain of argument which then goes on is then we're going to give a wake-up call to the political classes, what my friend uh, they, uh, said a few moments ago and all that hinting it's going to do it won't what it will do is brexit will lead to more brexit because as i said once you've got your first installment of brexit you've then got your 10 years of trade negotiation that's you'll get even less housing policy so what i am trying to do with lots of other people uh, in politics at the moment is to stop this uh this uh, paradigm so we're using all these long these words today this paradigm which comes to see all the issues facing the country in the context of whether we do or don't leave the European Union. What we should do is to not do that and instead address directly all of these other issues. And my view is if we'd done that first time round, because this was the fundamental mistake made by Cameron, because it was Cameron himself who put this right at the centre of politics, if instead we'd put housing, the NHS, education, inequality, apprenticeships, all of those issues which fundamentally affect the whole future of the country. If we put those at the centre of politics, we wouldn't be having this debate about the superordinate issue of Brexit in the first place. OK, we can take one more question uh, from the gentleman over there with his hand up. Yes, sir. This is, my friend, you... this is my friend, the socialist. Yes, indeed. Who's, who's, uh, yeah, well, who's I, intent on thinking that I'm in a fundamentally different tribe from him. Well, yeah. I, I, think, I think you've been great today, I might say. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, I, I'd just like to ask what you think now... In, in, in the light of experience and so forth, about your um, uh, academy schools uh, education policy, was it radical enough? Because now there's talk about you know Labour going on to uh, abolishing the public schools, getting rid of Eton. Um, uh, personally, I'm all in favour of uh, greater equality in society. This is what, uh, but but uh, you know, there's this question of sort of uh, whether you should uh, build people up or destroy things down. And uh, I don't like personally the idea of destroying Eton. How do you, how do you feel about this? Um, were your was your earlier policy radical enough, or is the prospective one maybe too radical? Well, coming back because this the, the fundamental issue which you're you're dealing with in in the public service at the moment is austerity or not austerity. And it really comes uh, into sharp relief when you look at the issue of education. Uh, there were some elements of the academy's policy which were controversial in the Labour Party. They were to do with how you run schools, and I'll come back to those in a moment. But the biggest element of the academy programme, the biggest element by far, was massive investment in state education. 
The Academy's programme was part of a programme which was called Building Schools for the Future, which was investing in the rebuilding renewal of every school in the country. It was very bold, which when we left office in 2010 was £8 billion a year. When I first started working for Tony Blair in 1998 and we got going on this serious education policy, we were spending as a country £800 a year on the building and renewal of school buildings. So we, in that Labour government, increased by tenfold, tenfold the national spending on on school buildings. Now, my own view is that there's nothing more important in a society than the quality of its schools. That is what, you know, renews a society and, and nurtures the next generation. And we should be spending properly on school buildings. One of the biggest things that happened with austerity was a cut in the school building programme. It was cut immediately from eight billion to three billion, and it's now running under two billion a year. That is the difference the Labour government makes, and what austerity has meant. Now, we said were we radical enough? The uh, academy's policy, that the, the controversial bit of the academy's policy, which was essentially closing seriously failing schools and reopening them with new leadership. That's what essentially it was. It was always controversial because it involved change, and for and for some of the people who'd been responsible for running the previous schools, of course, it was controversial with them. But actually. You know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Those schools have been phenomenally successful. Those of you who live in communities which have got the original academies that were set up, schools like Mossbourne in Hackney, I could go down the list. There are very, very few people who'd want to move back to what we had before. Were we radical enough? No. What I wanted to move on to, and I see as the next big issue in education, is what happens to people who don't go to university. Because in our country at the moment, people who go to university get a pretty good deal. There are controversies there about tuition fees and all that. But nonetheless, we have first-rate universities. People do well. They have high earning power. We have a terrible apprenticeship system in this country. We don't have a proper system of training and career development for the 60% of 18-year-olds, 60% who don't go to university. And the thing I was desperate to move on to in 2010 was to try and create, and wait for it because with some of my people who don't like Europe, you won't like this, but I'm going to say it anyway, to create in Britain an apprenticeship system like the Germans. Because the Germans have a fantastic... The Germans, the Germans and the Dutch, it's not just the Germans, the Germans have a brilliant apprenticeship system which invests as much in 18-year-olds who don't go to university as those who do. That's the next big and bold and new frontier I wanted. And I still think... We need to be doing it. And just to, to wrap up on these remarks, if we weren't doing Brexit, and I could get back to the things I really love, which is partly transport. I'm a bit of a train nerd, I'm afraid. But also education. Those are the things I'd be doing. And it, uh, we need a, to put them right at the centre of debate. You know, the proposition I'd like to put before people is why is it that we do not in this country spend as much on every 19-year-old who doesn't go to university as those who do go to university? At the moment, we spend four times more on those who do go to university than those who don't. Surprise, surprise, where do we get big disaffection? People who don't have decent earning power, people who are disaffected, it's by and large in those who don't get the opportunity to go to university. That's what we should be sorting out as a country, not this absolutely terrible, off-the-edge-of-a-cliff Brexit business which is making it even harder for us to deal with housing, build HS2. By the way, the no-deal preparations alone would have built half of my HS2 line. Alone. You know, all of these contracts with ferry companies that don't have ferries and all of that. So stop Brexit, build HS2, build houses, deal with the education crisis, have a proper apprenticeship system, and then we'd be much, much better off 
as a country. Lord Adonis, I love how in the question about education, you went from education <laughs> to apprenticeship to Brexit to HS2 well, and back to the trains. Yeah. You've covered everything. Very, very quickly, literally in 10 seconds, the last question we always ask on trigonometry is what's the one thing that no one's talking about that we should be talking about? Actually, it's housing. At the moment, we have a housing crisis greater than at any time in the last 50 years. We have people living millions of people, millions of people in this country, our fellow citizens living in slum conditions at the moment. That is an absolute scandal at the heart of our society. And if there's one thing we sort out in the next 10 years, it should be that. Fantastic. I think we can all agree Lord Adonis has been absolutely brilliant. Please give him a, a round of applause. Thanks. It was great. It was great to be with you. And I, and I, I promise if I become transport sector again, I am sorting out those problems on the M25. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much. Uh, subscribe to us on all the usual channels. You've been absolutely brilliant. Um, and enjoy the rest of the Battle of Ideas. We'll see you again. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.